A desperate surge. No sign of the four-year-old. An issue. We hold great concerns. Cleo was taken. 18 days of asking, where is Cleo? What's your name, sweetheart? My name is Cleo. As the search for Cleo enters its fifth day, Australian Defence Force are called in to help and police issue a national appeal. Detectives say this policing operation is the most important in the state, if not the country right now. Joining us for today's podcast is Carnarvon Shire President Eddie Smith, reporter Sarah Steger, WA Police Minister Paul Papalia and investigative journalist Kristen Shorten. Kristen, this is the period when police really start to broaden the scope of their search, isn't it? That's right, Nat. Look, by day five, WA police have asked the police forces in all jurisdictions across Australia to appeal for information from their residents about Cleo Smith. Between Monday, October 18 and Thursday, October 21, every police force around the country had appealed for information posting across all of their social media channels. For example, on Monday the 8th, Queensland police shared a post appealing for information about Cleo that was shared 5,000 times and attracted 500 comments. Every jurisdiction had posted by Thursday the 21st of October. All of those posts, though, have now been removed, I assume, because the matter is now before the courts. And we understand police, you know, at this point in time are now fielding hundreds of calls that are coming into Crime Stoppers, and I think these are predominantly about people who are acting suspiciously. So at this stage, they're obviously not ruling out Cleo being taken across the border. Police are reviewing cattle grid cameras and checking roadhouses. Sarah, on day five, you're sent up from Perth to cover the story, and this is at a time when Police Commissioner Chris Dawson says the search is at a critical stage. What was your first impression of what was happening up there? It was actually quite an interesting day because the day before there'd been quite a big storm to hit Carnarvon. Because of that storm, police actually resumed the marine arm of the search, which had actually been suspended two days earlier after three days of searching, you know, failed to turn up any sign that Cleo had entered the water. So it was sort of like um, a bit of a blessing in disguise that they got to, you know, go back out on the water the following day. But by that day, you know, everyone was involved. There were dozens of SES crews. There were eight members of the ADF there, you know, from the Pilbara Regiment, local members of the public who just wanted to help. Obviously, there was a massive roadblock set up under the King Wave Kill sign at Narrowloo Road and Blowholes Road. So no one could actually get into the campsite. The only ones who were still there was Ellie and Jake, who police revealed at the time, you know, they were at a loss of what to do and they couldn't leave the campsite. It just felt too wrong to leave. They were just sitting there, you know, holding out hope that Cleo would just show up at any time. So around the area, it was about a 20 square kilometre search radius and there were mounted police, there were SES on quad bikes on foot, there was the ADF members flying drones, there was air wing police flying drones. It was a very big operation at that stage and you could definitely sense it was becoming more desperate with each passing hour. It was also the first time that Inspector Monday actually admitted that Cleo really could be anywhere and that that came with, you know, the revelation that every jurisdiction in Australia, every police jurisdiction had put out a call for public information on their social media. And how close could you get to all of this activity that was happening? You know, the army reservists are flying drones over Mm. the blowholes. Have you been pushed right back at this point as media? 
So in terms of the actual campsite, which is where police set up their command centre, that's where forensics, homicide squad and the people in charge of this massive operation were set up. So media were kept probably about one kilometre from there. You couldn't get past there. We were allowed in at one stage under like a police escort and that's where a press conference had been held, I think it was on Thursday. But in terms of seeing search crews, we really were free to observe them do their jobs. So we spoke to several ADF officers. They showed us a high-tech drone that they use. We were up at the lighthouse as they launched that. So we got to watch that. And all day you've been out there, you just come across teams and teams of volunteers and other searchers just doing whatever they can to scour the bushland to find any sign of clear whatsoever. There was such extensive coverage of the search But were there some holidaymakers that were turning up unaware of what was going on there and they were being stopped at roadblocks and police were turning them away? Honestly, I only saw that happen once. I think the news spread very fast about Cleo. I did see a lot of holidaymakers. I don't know if you've been to the blowholes, but if you have, you get to a T-junction where you can't actually go straight anymore. You can either go left to the blowholes campground or you can go right, and that leads you up to Quabba Station. That leads you up to Red Bluff or Narraloo. So that was still all accessible to members of the public. That wasn't closed, and the local information centre made that very clear because they obviously, you know, didn't want the tourism industry to shut down completely. So that was still all accessible to people. It was more anything south of the T-junction was closed off to members of the public, and rightly so, for a period of time. And it was quite interesting because it was around this time you mentioned that Ellie and Jake were still there at the campsite they hadn't wanted to leave but it was around this same time that police revealed to the public that no members or campers at the campground had actually placed Cleo at the campsite and so there was a lot of questions being raised about that as well. There were a lot of questions and the media kept being told you know there was electronic evidence that was the phrase they used electronic evidence that Cleo was in fact at the campground on Friday night, the night before she vanished. We had an idea what it might be, but we weren't certain. We thought it might be a photo of some sort. But um, it turned out on Wednesday that Inspector Monday confirmed that that electronic evidence was actually CCTV from from a shack in the area. It didn't capture a photo or an image of her. It was actually the sound of her voice which placed her there and confirmed to police that she was indeed there the night before she vanished. It was actually in that same press conference that it was a pretty shocking admission that police revealed. They confirmed the rumours that had been swirling, that the tent that Cleo was in had been left unzipped to a height she could not have physically reached. So that seemingly quashed the theory that Cleo could have wandered off And so that was a rumour until then. So that was a big admission. And while they still refused to say, you know, outright that she had allegedly been abducted, it was very much implied that she had indeed been taken because there was just really no other option. And around this same time, police also reveal that they're looking into sex offenders living in the Carnarvon area. Sex offenders that have been um, identified as being around the Carnarvon area um, have been spoken to and are being dealt with by um, the investigative arm of, of this investigation. 
Kristen, what did Inspector Monday say about those inquiries into sex offenders? So what he had said was he had revealed that there were almost 20 registered sex offenders living in the Carnarvon area and that police had been making inquiries into their whereabouts and movements and following up with all of them. So Deputy Police Commissioner Daryl Gaunt had said that investigators were very comfortable with where they sit with those inquiries. By that comment, I assume he means that police would have eliminated those sex offenders from the investigation by establishing their movements at the relevant times and they could have done that through a range of methods such as firming up their alibis or using their phone records, bank transactions or even electronic monitoring devices if they were wearing them. And a couple of days later on October 22, which was day seven of Cleo being missing and the Friday, the West actually then revealed that there are at least a dozen child sex offenders on the run in WA. So Mm. that was pretty alarming when the West revealed that 12 sex offenders had either failed to comply with their reporting obligations or provided false or misleading info to police about where they were and the government just simply didn't know where they were. And interestingly, that weekend, the missing dangerous sex offenders register went down. So it actually crashed for about 48 hours. So whether that server error was due to all of the public trying to get on and have a look or the government had disabled it, that's still unclear. But that was an interesting development following those revelations. That definitely came as a shock and not just in relation to this case, that information was information we hadn't heard prior to this. Eddie, you're the Shire president. The world's media is focused on your town. Can you describe what that was like for locals at the time? By day five, I don't think the locals were taking much notice of the world media at that stage. That came probably another four or five days later. But they were acutely aware of how much the media were... um, putting it out there, what had occurred, and that it had basically become Australia-wide at the time. And what was it like, I guess, at this time in this bubble where an entire town is galvanised and looking for this little girl? Look, there was a lot of anxiety. There was high levels of anxiety across the entire community and frustration. Mm. Then also the frustration, and I, and I think the uh, all of the police involved that I spoke to was feeling that as much as the community, if not more, because because the effort they were putting in, even at that early stage, was massive and they just weren't coming up with answers and they were extremely frustrated as well. Mm. And the community were frustrated because the community was doing as much as it could and by then, you know, there was uh, messages going across the entire state and information coming in from all the roadhouses and everything else and the frustration levels were probably extremely high. The reporting of the the sex offenders in the area uh, was a little bit blown out of proportion and that only added to the community's anxiety because I think there was a, a bit of a misunderstanding with it. There's 20, I think it was 21 sex offenders in the Gascoigne region not the Carnarvon area. And the Gascoigne is a big area, isn't it? It's a massive area. So it was frustrating for the community and I don't think it helped the community's concerns the way it was reported. People up there, really, you'd had a very tough year, hadn't you? You'd been hit by floods back in February. There was Cyclone Saroja a couple of months after that. What kind of impact did those two events have? I'm a terror for taking positives out of negatives. (laughs) We lost the uh, jetty and the cyclone, and that's sad. That saga's continuing. And with the flood, there was 
plantation properties damaged, um, pastoral roads, a significant amount of pastoral roads damaged. But there's funding coming through to fix that. So, you know, we're a pretty stoic lot up here and we definitely didn't see the level of angst and anxiety and worry after those events that uh, were generated by poor Cleo. For people who haven't been to Carnarvon, what's the town's population? Uh, it's just over 5,000 at this point in time and climbing. And so I know there was a lot of talk about the fact that many people either knew the family directly or indirectly. And so I can only imagine that so many people would have been losing sleep through these nights with this anxiety and probably yourself as well. I don't know if you know the family or not, but, you know, just how difficult um, was it personally? It was really difficult for the entire community because I think most people didn't know them firsthand but were aware of who they were and what they were doing. The town's not that big that people don't know who people are. But it was a beautiful little four-year-old girl that had disappeared from the campsite and that's not something that happens in Carnarvon. There was a sense of we've lost a bit of innocence, uh, it's our safety guaranteed which we always considered it was but personally for me a beautiful little four-year-old girl's disappeared and it's heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking and that's how the town felt almost broken but i guess like you've alluded to that in many smaller towns there is this very very strong sense of community and even things like you know i recall that Cleo's school was organising psychologists to support students and teachers and families. So at the same time, were you also overwhelmed by the coming together of people and the support that they gave each other? Carnarvon is, like I said, it's a stoic town. We look after our own. Overwhelmed by the amount of support given to the entire community by the police and all the services, I should say that. But I don't think I was surprised because I just think it's the way Carnarvon is, the people in Carnarvon. They maintain positivity and that was what I tried to do through the whole process is get people to be positive, pray for the best possible and hope for the best possible outcome and I'm sure it's going to happen. But by day five, it was getting harder and harder for people to remain positive but we had to work hard at that. But people did. They did remain positive. As an outsider, I can say I really was surprised because it's not my town. And from the Coral Coast helicopters who jumped up in the air like hours after Cleo vanished to the local Fasine Cafe and the bakeries and the flower shops who offered their support to local police and SES for the entire 18-day period, it really did, it blew my mind. I mean, local police have admitted they had so much food during the search for Cleo, they actually couldn't get through it. They had to re-donate it to places within the community. And then there was things like a local coffee van that made the trip every day down to the blowholes. And it's a long drive if you haven't been here. It takes a good just under an hour to bring food and coffee to the police in the area. Police who, again, came up from all over WA to man roadblocks to assist the people on the ground who were searching day in, day out. So, Eddie, for you, it's kind of you're looking at it and thinking to yourself, well, this is just who we are. But for us who are from the city or from other places, we were looking at your community and thinking this is an incredible community. They have a bond, you know, 5,000 people are on a mission to find this child. 
Yeah, well, that's Carnarvon. And look, in the uh, rain event that caused the flooding, uh, Coral Coast helicopters were on the ground rescuing people off the road north of the town without being asked. They were up there getting it done. Not long after that, they were out the junction rescuing a guy out of the flooded river. That's why I've said I'm not surprised. This is what Carnarvon does. It comes together, it unites, and we help our own. And that's exactly what this town does. News upsorts at the time we hear um, from campers and strangers and you really get a sense of what you're talking about. I just find myself driving and, and looking looking around and you know, even when you're throwing rubbish out, just have, have a look for, for that sleeping bag. So everybody is searching. We know that the family are, are staying at the blowholes. They're clinging to hope that Cleo will be found. And Kristen, this is when we get another post from Ellie who's desperately appealing to the community. Yeah, now, like about... 80,000 other social media users. I was following Ellie across all of her social media channels. And, you know, by day 18, she was posting these gut-wrenching pleas for information and, you know, messages to Cleo almost daily. And it was really heartbreaking because it was like you're almost living through this horror with her in real time. And her posts were really giving everyone this rare insight into the roller coaster she was on of just fear and pain during this whole ordeal. So Ellie was posting on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. And while these posts would have no doubt been genuine and spontaneous, they were also very beneficial to keeping, I guess, the public interest in her daughter's disappearance really high and also the stories in the media because I think we were writing a story every time Ellie posted. So it really kept the appeal for information alive. And also what really shone through in all of her posts was this unwavering belief that Cleo was still alive. It was very, yeah, insightful. She was often writing things to Cleo like, I miss you, I love you, please come home to me. She was sharing these posts almost daily. So she shared the details of the $1 million reward when it was offered. And on day five, she posted on Instagram a photo of Cleo saying, my princess, where are you? On day six, underneath a picture of Cleo holding an ice cream cone, she wrote, my sweet girl, come home to me. But then to the public, if anyone sees anything at all, please contact police and details about the case number and whatnot. So... Ellie was sharing these posts as she sat at the campsite where Cleo was last seen. And as Sarah mentioned before, we've heard from WA Police Inspector John Monday that Ellie and Jake remained at the campsite throughout these days, day four, five, six, seven that we're talking about now. He said it was completely understandable. They don't want to leave. They don't know what to do. They're distraught. And when we listen back to that first television interview that Ellie and Jake gave, that emotional televised interview, Ellie described how they were waiting at the campsite for Cleo to return. Everyone still held out hope that she was alive. And Ellie said, we sit and watch the sand dunes and yeah. just think she's going to run down it back into our arms, but we're still waiting. It was absolutely devastating to see and hear that. Another pivotal moment, one that you've just mentioned, is when the state government approved this million-dollar reward. They're throwing everything at the race to find missing little Cleo tonight. A $1 million reward is on offer for information on the four-year-old's whereabouts. Minister, this is the biggest equal reward ever offered in WA. How does that process work of getting a reward? 
Well, normally uh, a request would come from police to government. We'd take it uh, you know, via me as the police minister and we'd take it to cabinet for consideration. In this case, because of the urgency of the matter and uh, the nature of, of the incident that we were dealing with, I essentially took it to the Premier. The Premier and I, acting as a subcommittee of cabinet, authorised it and then the following Monday we took it to cabinet for formal approval. Yeah, because obviously time is of the essence in a situation like this. And we saw that after the shooting of rebel bikey boss Nick Martin in December, that a million dollar reward was also offered in less than a week. Is that the important thing, that this money can be a great motivator to get people talking? Yeah, well, it's generally driven by the police, so uh, we wouldn't leap at it of our own volition. The police approach us, they say this would help us in this particular case. We were determined that whatever the police requested or required for the Clio investigation, then we would deliver it, and so we did it immediately. And are there concerns at any point when you're deciding whether or not to approve a reward like this? Are there issues that get talked about, like bounty hunters and things like that? Is that something that you have to consider when you're deciding what to do? Well, the police wouldn't ask us for a, a reward unless they felt that there's it's a positive contribution to the investigation or whatever operation they're undertaking. So they obviously consider all of those uh, potential issues and then they, having done that, they present the case to us mm-hmm. uh, to normally take to Cabinet. And as I said, in this case, there was no question we were just going to provide them with whatever they required. Obviously, you don't get involved at an operational level. But is something like this um, that you would be receiving briefings from the commissioner or are you like the rest of us uh, just waiting and watching what's coming through the media? I get a, you know, I do get reasonably regularly um, briefed, but I am also very keen to ensure that I don't become part of the problem that they're confronting. So I don't demand that they um, remove themselves from operational focus to, to brief me, but I did get uh, regular briefings, as did the Premier, obviously. And when we were getting to, you know, day seven, day eight, these these timelines, um, there was just such a sense of urgency, wasn't there? I mean, I guess you, like the rest of us, would have been feeling that same stress uh, to just have a breakthrough. I think everybody, not just in the state, but pretty much anywhere who had heard of this case um, was feeling incredibly anxious about it. Uh, Undeniably, similar cases elsewhere in the world um, don't normally end well. And the longer it um, extends for, the longer the period extends for for, of the child being missing, the the less likelihood there is of a positive outcome. So, yes, everyone was very anxious. There's actually only a handful of cases here in WA that have attracted a million-dollar reward. One is the disappearance of Lisa Govan back in 1999. Now, Lisa Govan was last seen outside a club, Darrow's Bikey Clubhouse in Kalgoorlie, which is in our state's goldfields, and Lisa's body has never been found. Police offered a reward in January 2021 for that particular case. Uh, One of the other cases is a case of a young girl called Lisa Mott, and Lisa disappeared in 1980. She was 12 years old and she lived in Collie which is in our state's southwest. She was walking home from a basketball court and she was seen getting into a yellow panel van and that was the very last sighting of her and just like uh, Lisa Govan, Lisa Mott's body has never been found. So there was a reward for information leading to her whereabouts that was offered in October 2020. 
And Kristen, the other case is that of Jared Ross, and that's an investigation that you worked tirelessly on. Yeah, Nat. So the $1 million reward had been used in other states before um, in cases such as William Tyrrell's, but that landmark reward amount wasn't offered in WA until last year when the government offered $1 million to anyone who could provide that vital piece of information to help the special crime squad catch Jared Ross's killer. So that historic reward increase from 250000 to $1 million was announced on the 23rd anniversary of Jared's abduction in October last year. And just four days later, the government announced a reward of a million dollars in the case of Lisa Mott and obviously, and there's now the million dollars in Lisa Govan's case as well. And at that time, uh, the work that you did on the Jared Ross investigation, you were dealing quite closely with a detective called Rod Wild. He then becomes the head of this task force. Just tell us about that and, and about Rod's background. So, yeah, I've worked very closely with Detective Superintendent Rod Wild um, over the past few years because he was a significant contributor to the documentary I made about Jared Ross's unsolved murder, The Boy in the Blue Cap, which the West published in 2019. So Rod was critical to helping bring Jared's story to life in that documentary. I have gotten to know him quite well. I have a lot of respect for Rod. I really like him, but I know that he's very well liked among his colleagues and peers and also among the media. So he's a police officer of close to 40 years. He's been a detective for, I'm pretty sure, at least 30 of those years. I think about 32, 33 now. And so, yeah, most recently, prior to heading up Task Force Rodeo to find Cleo, he headed up Task Force Ravello, which was the major investigation launched last December to investigate the fatal shooting of former Rebels boss Nick Martin. And that investigation ultimately led to a man being charged with Martin's murder. And prior to that, as I mentioned, Detective Superintendent Wild oversaw the fresh police investigation into the 1997 abduction and murder of Jared Ross. So that was when he was the boss of the Special Crime Division. Superintendent Wild is now the head of major crime, which oversees the current uh, homicides that are being investigated. So, you know, he's no stranger to running major police investigations, including missing children's cases. He really is such a professional, committed, devoted detective who really has a heart for these cases. He's a father himself. And like you said, when speaking to the media about Cleo, child abduction, cases don't get any worse. He really feels for the parents and everyone involved. And yeah, he's definitely the right person to be leading up an investigation like this. And 100 officers are appointed to this task force. From what you know with the other cases that you've covered, is that a a large group of officers in such a short period of time? Yeah, and I think it was about 140 by the end. It's a huge amount of officers to be involved. I mean, I know with the reinvestigation of Jared Ross, while that wasn't a fresh homicide investigation, they were going back over a historic case. But I think a lot of resources was about a dozen officers in that case. And that was considered to be a lot. So, I mean, this was a huge investigation and you could really see that they were throwing everything at it because time was so critical and of the essence in finding Cleo alive because these initial days after a child goes missing, their safety really is in such dire jeopardy. And on day seven, police issue this urgent public announcement. This is an urgent announcement from the WA Police Force. Police need your help to find Cleo Smith. In the early hours of Saturday the 16th of October, little Cleo vanished from her family's tent at the blowholes near Carnarvon. 
Now the state government is offering a $1 million reward. Can you help find her? The four-year-old was wearing a pink onesie. She was wrapped in a sleeping bag. Now she's gone. Please help us find her. Any information, call Crime Stoppers. Eddie, police urge anyone within a thousand kilometre radius of the blowholes who may have vision from dash cams and what have you to get in touch. If we were to draw a circle on a map, we're talking about a really big area, but still very remote, isn't it? Yes, it is. So if you drew a circle of a thousand kilometres, you're, you're south of Geraldton, you're up around Carrara and inland to the other side of Mekasara. It's a huge area. And were the public even funnelling information your way as well? Yeah, there was a significant amount of information coming through my phone and email. People in Geraldton, people in Perth. I've had people, clairvoyance from uh, Queensland and New Zealand ring. It was amazing. And so did you almost have to set up your own semi-command post in to sort of filter that information through to the police? Yeah, look, it reached the point where, yeah, there was a fair bit of vetting going on on my part because I, I came to realise that they were inundated, but I think we were all getting inundated by the same people. The communication between myself and the police was, I'm, I'll leave it to the experts to deal with. And we have heard in other cases where clairvoyance can actually be quite distressing for families and can send people on these wild goose chases. Did you feel at any point that you needed to hunt down any of this information that you were being fed by these cold callers? No. What I was doing was anything that I thought held any uh, chance at all of being something that needed to be listened to, I'd forwarded on straight on to the police to deal with. Yeah, it's hard to imagine just how hectic it was for you in those days because you're part of the search, you're fielding these calls. And, of course, this was all coming through because police were requesting the public to contact them with anything they had and they were looking for this vision from far and wide. The frustration levels were only increasing at that time because we were all putting it out there as far as far wide as we could because there just wasn't anything coming in. Mm. So the level of anxiety increased, but the frustration was just phenomenal because there was such an effort at getting anything at all, any information at all that uh, would help. It just was just not coming forward. The following is a list of locations detectives say are now of great interest. Motel check-in and communal areas, service stations, fast food outlets, bakeries, truck stops free camping areas, children's clothing stores, pharmacies and camping stores. Kristen, at the same time, Rod Wilde was saying there were still people they wanted to speak to. Who was he referring to? Yeah, unbelievably, by this point, police were still saying there were people who had been at the campsite when Cleo Smith vanished who had failed to come forward and identify themselves to police. So obviously by this point, police would have gathered a lot of evidence and data such as phone records from that nearby tower and they knew that people still hadn't come forward who had been there, which would have been incredibly frustrating. So six days after Cleo had disappeared, Police still believed that there were campers who were unaccounted for and they didn't want to get into specifics, but they said they certainly know that there were people who could have cancelled on that coastal strip because there were different access points who hadn't come forward. They were still calling on people to come forward and they were still obviously working through all of that data to identify them. Sarah, did you check out those different access points? Because there's not just one way in and out of the blowholes, is there? 
No, not at all. From the air, it actually, it's unbelievable. It looks like this massive, massive web of different roads. It's like a complex network. And the problem is they're mostly all unsealed roads as well. They're just dirt tracks. It's a tangled web of possible escape routes. Obviously, most of these roads are not going to have CCTV. There's not many travellers on them. So it did seem like just a massive, massive mission just for police to even figure out if she had been abducted, which, of course, we didn't know at that time, which path the potential abductor may have taken if that is indeed what had happened to her. And just on the massive search radius and call for CCTV from members of the public, we know that call, that it wasn't just limited to members of the public volunteering that information. We know that there were detectives travelling as far as Lancelin to fuel stations. They're asking for CCTV. We spoke to, I think, two dozen different roadhouses and fuel station operators across WA, and they all, apart from a handful, had been contacted by police either in person or over the phone and requested for 48 hours' worth of vision. I think it was between Friday evening and Sunday morning. Just imagine how massive that operation is to be stretching so far to find this information and find this vision. And at the time, police wouldn't confirm or deny, but there were some reports that campers had heard a car skidding from the area in the early hours of the morning. Yeah, that was actually quite unbelievable when they did confirm that. We heard rumours of it. I don't think we know if the actual reports have been proven, but police did confirm, I think it was five days after Cleo went missing, that there had been multiple reports from campers of the sound of screeching tyres about 3am the morning Cleo vanished, only two or so hours, one and a half hours after Ellie, her mum, last saw her. So Eddie, around this time, I think the land search, sort of day six, day seven, the land search starts to be scaled back. Could you see that it was starting to be trimmed down? You could, but I don't think it really impacted people's thinking because there was so much other stuff happening and and the, the spread of what was happening was just massive. And I don't think the winding back of the search up there really had much of an impact. There was stuff ongoing the whole time, but it had been wound back. But because so many things were happening elsewhere, the police appeared to be not giving up at all and just spreading the net wider and wider and wider on just trying to find Cleo. So that was the other thing that was great. And between what Ellie was doing and the police were doing, the community really informed of what was happening. So the community fully understood how the process was going and there was still a lot being done. Well, Kristen, Eddie, Sarah and Minister Paul Papalia, thanks for your time and we hope that you can join us for episode four when police reveal a new clue. You'll find more information on this case at thewest.com.au forward slash Cleo. My Name is Cleo is recorded in the studios of the West Australian newspaper. This podcast is produced and edited by Kate Ryan and hosted by executive producer Natalie Bongiolo. Audio clippings provided by Channel 7 and WA Police.